Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, looking at the fashion industry and Chinese e-commerce giant Shine has joined forces with Forever 21 for what is being described as a very dynamic partnership. Uh, Shine will feature Forever 21's trendy clothing accessories, beauty items on its platform, while also looking into the possibility of setting up retail spots with in um, within Forever 21 stores. So what does this mean for the fashion industry and more specifically sustainable fashion? Joining us is Natasha Radcliffe Thomas, Professor of Marketing and Sustainable Business at the British School of Fashion, GCU London. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. What what does this mean as far as I know it, it was looked at as kind of an unlikely partnership, but what do you see this meaning when it comes to fashion and sustainable fashion? Yeah, I mean, I think if I answer the first bit of the question first, for fashion, I can see that this is like a fast fashion marriage made in heaven. Shein is the largest fashion company in the world with the highest sales. It was valued at US $100 billion last year. But they are at the moment operating solely online. So they're an online um, you know, fashion retailer. They sell through an app and they're really successful in that way. But they're looking to get into retail and they're looking to get into you know, actual our fashion stores. And that's why they're partnering with Forever 21, who in the past were an extremely successful kind of retailer that we had in shopping malls, you know, all over North America, for example. So for fashion, I can see it makes sense. Shein has fabulous um, technology behind it. A lot of their market intelligence is driven by the AI. The founder was actually a specialist in search engine optimization. So it's one of those fashion companies that's really taken, you know, reading the algorithms and catching the trends and pumping out lots of product. But therein lies the problem for sustainability because they their business model is reliant on huge volumes pumped out. They add between two to ten thousand different styles every day to their site. And they need they're selling at low prices, they have a lot of discount, and there's a lot of wastage built into the system. So we're a lot of the clothes are also not terribly high quality, and they've also made of plastics because a you know, your listeners may not be aware, but a lot of the fast fashion fabrics that we're buying, like polyester and acrylics, are basically plastics. So there's a lot of issues um, for sustainability there. Does it talk more then or does it show the demand as well then for for so-called fast fashion? And like you talked about, I mean, that's a a large amount, two to 10,000 new styles every day. But clearly there must be a market. There must still be a a lot of people that, that want and want to purchase this cheap fast fashion. Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the problems with the whole fast fashion model is it relies on that kind of dopamine hit that we get when we see something, we click. And, you know, with the advent of online selling, selling through apps, it's so easy just to see an image, click, it's in the shopping basket, it's being sent to you. And for most people, price is a very important piece. So for a lot of people, especially, you know, there's a cost of living crisis for lots of people. There's, we've got used to clothing being so cheap and it seems such a bargain. But therein, again, lies the problem because it becomes like disposable and throwaway. And an interesting thing that's, that's sort of come to light is that, I mean, companies like Shein target the younger consumers. It's the teenagers and the young 20s. And a lot of those young people are really you know, interested in the climate and sustainability but they don't really necessarily join the dots between how your purchase of a cheap, you know, dress for the weekend is connected to a big global supply chain that's pumping out carbon into the atmosphere. And why do you think that in some areas, the connecting those dots seems very, it's almost part of it. And it seems very obvious where in fashion, like you said, so if you're buying a dress or a shirt for $6, you have to know that it was made uh, somewhere where where wages are not high. It was uh, made in a very mass marketed kind of way. Why do you think there is kind of that disconnect? (laughs) 
I think one of the issues is that so many of us are really remote from manufacture. So we actually, you know, people barely know how to sew a button on. So they can't actually imagine that uh, the, the amount of human labor that goes into making clothing. So that's one thing, I think. And also just over the last 50 or so years with mass industrialization, we've got really used in the developed world to having cheap food and having cheap fashion and just considering some of these things as a kind of right. And so people start to question when a price is high. They don't really do that breaking down in a way that you might, I don't know, with a watch or something, you might just imagine that it that it costs more that because you can't imagine that you could make it. So I think, it, you know, it's all of those ideas around and of course they're pushed through promotion they're advertising on social media on tiktok instagram facebook all the time so we're having this product pushed at us all the time and humans like novelty we like color we like to dress up and maybe for example in a cost of living crisis you think well i'm going to treat myself to a really cheap dress and not actually think through the consequences and this is what's called a kind of intention behavior gap where we might intend to have sustainable practices and we probably do care about some of these issues around ethical labor and and the environment in one bit of our mind but then we get pulled into these cheap shoes or a great bag or a dress and we just sort of have a fantasy of our what how good our life could be if we only owned those products so it's a really big problem is there also uh, perhaps uh, people thinking well it's okay because when i'm done with it or when it fall breaks apart because we know that the, a lot of these pieces they're not made to last years and years they're made to last maybe one season but is there a, the thought process that it's okay because well i'm going to receive cycle these textiles and so it's not really that bad absolutely and i think there's two things at play there so one is a lot of a lot of us think well i'll I'll donate it so i'll give it to a thrift store and somebody else can and can have the benefit of that and the other thing as you alluded to is the kind of idea of recycling so with something like a glass bottle or even a plastic bottle that makes sense we have systems that can recycle those materials very easily but with fashion and garments they're not actually designed to be recycled and um, it's been shown by organizations like the ellen macarthur foundation that actually only around 1% of clothing gets recycled into clothing. So often when we're donating clothes or we're putting clothes in a textile bank, they will actually end up flooding the market in places like Ghana, in places like Chile, and causing massive disruption through textile waste pollution and also disrupting local clothing markets so there are a lot of negative impacts that come at the end of life of clothing and one of the big problems is that the majority of or around half of clothes that are produced never actually get worn so the whole business model is designed on pumping out volume but there isn't actually necessarily the demand for that we have enough clothes on the planet now that we never need to make any more to be honest if we think about it uh, so what would you like to see happen? And again, with this merger going ahead, what, what do you think we should be focusing on maybe instead? Well, it's good to see that around the world, different regional and national governments are putting in legislation and putting in higher standards that ask for transparency. And that's a really important concept. Transparency doesn't mean necessarily sustainability, but it means that people tell you and disclose how much they're making, what it's made from, where it's made, how much people are being paid, et cetera. So I think having those kind of um, legislation is a really important thing. But also I think we need to penalize the business models that have so much waste built into them. And we also need to look at responsible marketing and advertising so that we're not kind of, because it isn't, it shouldn't be the consumer's fault. I mean, we should be able to buy clothing without feeling guilty about it. We shouldn't need a degree in biochemistry and human rights law to actually understand the impacts of, of our clothing. So I think there are, a couple of, of suggestions, but also as individuals, we can think we've got secondhand September we have in the UK coming up. Think about shopping in your own wardrobe, um, swapping with friends, buying secondhand clothing, and then looking after the clothing that you do have. Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, appreciate your time and expertise on this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas, Professor of Marketing and Sustainable Business at the British School of Fashion, GCU, London. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. We are talking spending, and I know you've written extensively about this and about how much money the government had to spend and billions of dollars. Where are we now with the spending in that list? Yeah, the government yesterday closed the books on a year of spending the likes of which I have never seen. And I've been covering politics for 15 years now. Uh, Basically, this was, if you remember back last year, we enjoyed this incredible rebound as the economy was roaring back from the pandemic. And Premier David Eby took power in November and discovered he was sitting on this like Scrooge McDuck Mm. style kind of gold silo of money. Uh, and he started spending it. And the fiscal year ended uh, March 31st of, of this year. And we were sort of waiting to see, you know, like, well, how much was it actually? And it ended up being $8 billion that the premier got to spend essentially between kind of pretty much like December and the end of March. And the list in public accounts, we sort of, we kind of knew it was the government was going through it at the time, but to put it all together, you know, we had the $500 million uh, to keep BC ferries fares from spiking through the roof. We had that billion dollars that municipalities could just spend on whatever they wanted, like we've never <laughs> seen before. Here's a billion dollars, yeah. municipalities, spend whatever you want. Yeah. Um, we had a billion and a half for those tax credits. You remember there was like a 400-ish kind of check for a single person uh, on the climate action tax credit, and 164 for the affordability tax credit. They kind of they came through the feds, um, uh, so that's how you saw them. There was like um, you know 150 million for the Cancer Foundation and 45 million for public libraries, and it, the list kind of goes on and on. Um, it is an enormous amount of money, and I think the question that came yesterday as we sort of looked at this is, did it work? You know, the idea was to make people feel like the government was responding, uh, helping out after the, the pandemic as the you know economy was kind of coming back, but people were being stretched, gas prices were up, uh, all the things that we're experiencing now on, on interest rates and affordability. Um, we will never, uh, you know, probably <laughs> unless something crazy happens, see that again uh, from a provincial government. That much money spent that quickly. And the question for the premier is, do people feel like they just were warm and fuzzy from the provincial government on all this money that came out the door? And did it produce visible results in areas, you know, that that uh, the premier has promised? I'm not I'm not sure. The answer is yes, but it's certainly uh, quite a list that we got to see uh, for the first time yesterday. And uh, did you did you mention this one, uh, the bailout of BC Ferries? There were there were millions mm-hmm. of dollars given to BC Ferries. That was the one that kind of stuck out to me when you asked that question. Is anybody feeling better off? Or are you seeing the benefits of this? And I, I think if you were going to ask people specifically who ride the ferries, maybe not. You might not be seeing any direct benefit from that money. No, I mean, well, you know, it's kind of a, a kick in the pants when it comes to BC ferries because the service has been so poor. But that money kept your ticket fare from going up 10%. Uh, and now it's predicted it'll only go up 3%. So in addition to crummy service, you might have also got a gigantic uh, increase in the price you pay to BC ferries. And that money prevented or is supposed to prevent that from happening. So, you know, it could have been worse, I guess, if you you can imagine that for BC ferries. But you put all this kind of money together and the opposition is certainly saying like, well, look, you know, there are entire sectors uh, of people who are are struggling uh, mightily right now, including seniors. And they're looking at that and wondering where did that $8 billion really go? Like what, what good was it? And that continues to be part of the issue that the premier faces because he promised visible results when he became premier in crime, in healthcare, uh, in affordability, in climate change and things like that. He, he wants people to be able to see and feel the progress. Um, I'm not sure 
that that we see much of that uh, from this money that was spent. And you know, you, you, that that is really sort of the ballot box question he's he's set up for himself. Uh, as we approach next year's uh, election. So anyways, it's an interesting uh, public accounts, as we call it here. It showed a surplus, very small surplus, 700-ish million dollars uh, in, in kind of a funny bit of government um, sleight of hand. They, uh, the NDP patted itself on the back yesterday for saying, well, we've paid off what was the deficits we ran during COVID. You remember the government went into the red mm-hmm. for several years. We've paid that off. It's called the operating debt. We've paid that off, yay to us. But when you look at the debt for the province, it's a bit, the, they actually added to the debt at the same time. So the amount that came down and then the amount that came up washed each other out. It's a little bit like you pay off your new TV on your credit card, but then you also spend a bunch of new stuff on your credit card and you get the bill and you're like, wait a second, the balance is still the same. So the debt is still the same, even though we paid like $7 billion off to cover those COVID deficits, which is, um, you know, classic government accounting. And then the other thing that stood out for me, ICBC, um, you know, not quite a dumpster fire again, but it has tanked. Its investment income is down a couple billion dollars. It's now back into a deficit position. And I just can't help but remind people that, you know, it was not that long ago. It was uh, September of last year um, that we were talking about whether ICBC could afford to give everyone those $110 rebates from last spring. And the government said, we can because they're in a fantastic financial position due to the good financial management of the province. We can dump $400 million out of ICBC and into your pockets. Well, now we are back in a gigantic deficit for ICBC. Not gigantic, but it is a deficit. And, and I think that's another question we have there of is this government just playing the same political games that the previous government played? You milk ICBC like a golden cow for uh, you know feel-good rebates every time. It looks like it's making money. You never give it enough room to breathe and you know stockpile any money and boom, it, it ends up in deficit again. And I think that's a question that the government is going to have to keep an eye on as well. Right. Because and, and that's where when you're talking about are people seeing things that are better or feeling better, a check in hand or a check going into your bank account is something that that you see and you can you have it right there in front of you. Whereas the other one, the, the millions go spend it to however you want. Nobody actually sees that or is going to think about that. It's a continual challenge for government to give people either cash or rebates. It costs an enormous amount, right? Like that, just that $100 kind of rebate from ICBC costs $400 million. So anytime you give everyone in the province money, uh, you end up spending just billions of dollars. So the government's default to these little credits, right? Tax credit here and affordability credit there. And they're mostly income tested. And they're most like the climate action tax credit that you might have got 400 ish dollars on was only really if you made under $61,000. And so the government defaults to this kind of, you know, if we're going to spend that much money, we need to target the people who need it the most. And then that means that what we would consider to be a lot of us uh, middle class uh, who maybe make more than $61,000, but are struggling all over the place with grocery prices and rents and interest rates. We don't get the same level of assistance. And that that is a problem the New Democrats have wrestled with as well as their obsession, you know, with targeting, I guess, for good reason, lower income people, but not recognizing that um, there are middle income people who are struggling, who voted New Democrat, who are urban voters in Metro Vancouver, who would like some help and find themselves sometimes looking from a distance at what the government is doing because they don't qualify on paper. And that is a a perpetual issue for this NDP government as I watch them income test uh, a lot of their aid. All right, Rob, let's uh, pause there. Well, I think we're probably very well protected against serious disease. Most British Columbians have received three shots. Most British Columbians have had COVID, which creates this hybrid immunity that is even more protective. But uh, this uh, will wear off over time, and it'll be particularly important to build on this with the new Omicron-based XBB vaccine when it does come out uh, shortly. That was Dr. Brian Conway, medical director with the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. And Rob, I was playing that clip because he was asked about the new variant of COVID that has been that has arrived and the government's response and what we might expect moving forward. Yeah, well, Dr. Conway, they're talking about the the latest booster that you can expect to see in BC in, in late September, according to Dr. Bonnie Henry, because uh, there is concern 
about a new variant of COVID. It's called BA 2.86, which rolls off the tongue. Um, but it essentially has been identified as, as one to watch by the World Health Organization because it's highly mutated, has more than 30 mutations in its spike protein. So the fear is that people's antibodies from previous COVID infections and vaccines might not as easily recognize or fight this variant. Uh, and that it might make symptoms more severe, put more people in the hospital. That has not happened yet. There are some cases in the United States. Um, this was the first one that BC uh, disclosed uh, earlier this week in all of Canada, uh, someone in the Fraser Health region, and worry you know, that it could become, much like Omicron, the sort of dominant strain. There, you know, I, I think people may ask, uh, are we heading back to some type of um, vaccine, um, you know, mask mandate or something that we went through in COVID. No, that Dr. Henry has been making the round saying that's not where we're going. Uh, again, where this is just something for people to be aware of as we enter into the flu season and the, you know, obviously the, uh, the, va- the vaccine and flu uh, and COVID vaccine campaign that the government is going to unveil later uh, this month. So, a variant of concern and a variant to watch, but um, not something that the government is preparing to sort of, you know, begin to ramp up those COVID uh, rules and restrictions that we saw in the past. Right. And and Dr. Conway also went into it, not in that clip there, but talked about kind of what you just said, too, and that, yes, it's a, a variant. But he also said this is the natural way that a virus mutates and we are we're expecting this, but not not stronger, probably. And like you said, not seeing people that are going into hospital or hospital rates. But I, I do find that here we are last day of August 2023. And even just saying mask mandate or, or raising the question, there are going to be people who will be furious that we're still talking about that. So we're talking about booster shots. But I would hope we're at the stage where, again, it could be a personal choice. If you want to get another shot, if you want to wear a mask, go for it, do it, but not looking to government to bring in these mandates. Yeah, I think that's where Dr. Henry is as well. Um, There is a question that is going to come up, I think, in the next few weeks as government prepares its its vaccine, flu and COVID vaccine campaign for this fall about mandatory vaccination. And that still exists within um, the healthcare sector for nurses. And the government is considering what to do about that. We're the only province that still requires that outside of Nova Scotia, which does it differently. There's somewhere around 680 uh, nurses that were fired uh, from their jobs who are in the grievance process uh, right now with the BC Nurses Union. There are a few options for government here. They could continue the mandatory vaccination requirement, which is a provincial health order. They could change the order, essentially drop it and turn it into a cabinet regulation, which would be a political decision by the health minister and the government, um, or they could drop it. And I think those op- all three options are being talked about by government right now. Uh, we know that the healthcare system could use the nurses. We know our province has been... Um, a kind of an outlier in the way that we are dealing with that at this point in this part of, of the journey that we're on with COVID and lots of people, especially in rural communities, are asking for that to be lifted so those nurses can come back. But it's not something Dr. Henry or Health Minister Adrian Dix has, has been supportive of until I think that that kind of discussion is happening in government right now, and and we might be able we might be seeing something on that in the next few weeks. It is an interesting one when you look at that. That BC is the only province, and I know Dr. Henry early early on in the pandemic said she didn't have a lot of time for healthcare workers who didn't get vaccinated, and she was talking I think about all vaccines, not just COVID. But it does seem strange, doesn't it, that BC is the only holdout as far as making this a requirement when we need healthcare workers. Well, it's, it's even more strange as time goes by, right? To be, because to be considered fully vaccinated for this requirement, you needed the original shot and, and the booster. Uh, but we're now at the point where you may have got your third shot or your fourth shot. Uh, and so the idea of being fully vaccinated under the provincial health order doesn't really re- reflect reality, I don't think. Uh, and so that that question as time goes on, what we consider mandatory vaccination or what we consider to be vaccinated uh, changes. And the government looks a little bit uh, out of step, I think. So it, it look like there are a lot of opinions about this and uh, how the, our province has become basically the only one in Canada to continue to hold this line. Uh, and I think it, it, there'll be some legitimate questions 
when we get the sort of vaccine strategy for the flu and COVID in the weeks ahead and why BC is or isn't continuing to do this. Rob, thank you so much. And we will talk with you again tomorrow. Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Global Affairs Canada has issued a travel advisory. It is warning LGBTQ plus community members saying that they could potentially face discrimination if traveling to some areas in the United States. Now, this is unlike similar warnings that have been put in place for other countries. This warning doesn't specify which state is of particular concern or states of concerns. It simply says that travelers should check local laws for their destination before traveling. Well, Michelle Fortin joins us now, co-chair of the Vancouver Pride Society. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for the interest in the story. Well, it's getting a lot of reaction and in some cases being called a bit of a political ploy or importing an issue from the United States, one that isn't really directly impacting travel or shouldn't. But what is your response to this warning that has been put in place by Global Affairs Canada? You know, I I do think it's important that people are aware that in the United States right now, um, transphobia and homophobia is definitely on the rise. And in fact, legislation is being passed. Um, Over 300 new laws have been put in place over the last couple of years that uh, limit uh, or take away the rights um, of folks in our 2S LGBTQ community. And I think it's important Um, that people do make themselves aware of which states they're traveling to. And, and when we talk about that, and and obviously that that is a big concern, and and looking at what laws have come in 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 various states, but is it something you think that would have an impact on on Canadian tourists? Um, so I, I know for myself, I definitely choose where I'm going to spend my money, where I'm going to invest. And so as an example, uh, about six months ago, the NAACP put out an alert suggesting to folks that were people of color and members of the 2SLGBTQAI plus community not to travel to Florida um, and really not to spend your money there because your rights are deemed to be less than. So I do think it's important, and I'm actually quite proud of the Canadian government to making this choice. That's different, though, isn't it? Not supporting a place with tourism dollars to, to show that, that you're not in favor of what they've done and to show that you don't support it. I mean, that's, that's a, different, a different thing, isn't it, from telling people you might be targeted, you might be put at risk, or your safety might be threatened if you travel to this place. Well, I think uh, as as a, a white middle class human, I have uh, more power and control in my life than an indigenous person, a person of color, a black person, someone that experiences disabilities. And so this is just a reminder, uh, kind of caveat emptor, right? Let the buyer beware um, that there are places in the United States where you need to be careful when you travel because the rights that you experience here in Canada may be limited or indeed um, uh, taken away from you. Do you think this will change uh, how people travel or the travel plans of people in in the LGBTQ community as far as even if, if people maybe had been planning trips or thinking about going to parts of the states that they will think twice or even cancel those plans because of this? You know, I, as, as an example, um, as, a, as, as, as someone who, you know, could have babies, I've made decisions based on legislation in the U.S. that I won't travel to states where I couldn't get health care, um, <laughs> that, that, that I feel I have a right to. And so I think that this is, again, just an opportunity for folks to make an informed decision and to think about what they might be able to access or not access when they're traveling to specific parts of the United States. Um, so I I think that um, my nibblings uh, in the community will probably think twice before um, making trips to parts of the states uh, where their rights are limited. Right. And, and when you talk about accessing health care, but again, is that more of a, a stance in that not being supportive of, of the restrictions and how uh, in some states health care for, for women, reproductive health care has been 
gone back in time, but it, not that it would be healthcare you would need while on a vacation, but more the principle of it that this healthcare has been taken away. Uh, but the reality is, is that on a vacation, people can become pregnant or people can be pregnant while they're traveling. So I, I think I think the reality is, is that, again, this is a reminder to think about where you're traveling to, just as you would in any other country where there may be limitations, um, that, that your eyes are open to what you may encounter or what you may witness as well. Because as someone who um, uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming is an ally, are there places that you choose not to go to in the world because you do, don't want to bo- wa- watch the othering or limitations of rights of people? And do you think that this will change too as far as should the the ban, not ban, sorry, should the warning that was put out by Global Affairs then, do you think it should have gone further to say, because it's really leaving it up for to travelers to, to find out. It says check local laws at your destination before traveling. Do you think it should have gone further and perhaps even singled out areas where it's saying that this, this warning is in place? I, I certainly think that had there been some links to where people can find where new legislation um, has been put in place would be useful. And um, I, if you Google changes in laws in relationship to our community in the U.S., you can find a lot of information because sadly we are being targeted. Michelle, I appreciate so much you coming on the show and talking more about this. And thank you so much for your time. And we will talk to you again soon. You bet. Take care, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check back in with show contributor Scott Chance. Hello again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, how's it going? How's the last hour been? (laughs) So good. So good. And uh, we are talking about money and a lot of people kind of wondering, I would think, how are they going to send the kids to post-secondary school? Yeah, I came across this really great article in the Globe and Mail that caught me because this is something that my wife and I have like talked about and touched on a little bit, but it just seems like, like a pipe dream, like such a far off thing because like we got the inflation and the cost of groceries and the gas and the rent and all the things that just make like living in the now so hard. It's like impossible to even think about things like retirement or saving for your kids post-secondary education, which is something that we want to do. So I came across this article in the Globe and Mail called five ways that yes, you can save for your child's post-secondary education. It's by Tim Sesnick. He is the CEO and founder of a financial advisory group called Our Family office. And the ways that he says that you can still save are uh, begging, borrowing, saving, and stealing. And uh, of course, he goes into some of the detail there. I had a a chance to chat with him and I asked him, like, is this something that is actually like a reality for people post-secondary education? Or is that something that we should just, you know, kind of shelve that idea for now and maybe even rethink, you know, kind of the future of what post-secondary education looks like because of the cost? Uh, that's that's a great question. You know, I think first of all, the more time you have to save or plan, the better. You know, if your if your child's going to university or college next year, um, you haven't started thinking about this till now. It it, it it's harder. Um, but because there's more than one way to pay for an education, um, a little planning ahead of time will go a long way. So, for example, saving is one way to do it. And if you're saving even just a little bit, doesn't have to be much, or maybe maybe nothing at all for the next two or three years, but even just whatever you can between now and the time your child goes to college or university in, and hopefully in several years, you will, you will have saved something. And that's, that's good. That's just what, but that's only one of the five ways to pay for an education. So you need to plan ahead. Maybe the, the plan is always that your child will take out a student loan or look for scholarships or grants uh, to go to, to go to college or university. Um, and, and there are lots of things available out there, lots of grants available uh, loans are available through the government if people qualify. Um, and you just have to know, uh, you know, I think when it comes to grants and, and loans and things, you want to start applying for those things a year in advance of a child, you know, going to school. Uh, just start planning ahead. The saving part needs to take ideally a few years. Okay. Um, yeah, I, yep. uh, you. Well, I love that. I want to quickly mention this: that you, I, I like how you break this down. The ways to think about paying for your education: beg, borrow, steal, sweat, and save. 
you know, and which is kind of just like, you know, you, f- you find the ways you kind of scrap your way through it. And I think that that's how people who are in the housing market have done it. And, you know, I, I talked to my parents and that's how they sort of reflect the ways that they had to had to make ends meet as well. And I think that this applies kind of like to every generation and stuff. And yeah, I, you know, you kind of read into some of this and you break it down and these are really practical and, and smart solutions that you've come up with here. But essentially that's what we're doing, right? It's like beg, borrow, steal, sweat, but you're not actually talking about begging, borrowing, steal. No, steal. no, no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but begging is getting free money in the form of grants or scholarship, right? which you can apply for in advance um, a year ahead of time. You can apply for those things. Borrowing is obvious. That's student loans or, or you know, parents otherwise boring for their child to go to school. But student loans are the first thing I would look to, to, to do through, the, through your province's application process. Okay. And then um, stealing. That, that's parents stealing assets from other, you know, re- from their retirement assets, withdrawing from their money from their RSPs and things, which, by the way, I don't recommend. That is a very last resort option. You'd be better off with the other methods because saving for time is also a, a priority, high priority. Um, sweating is the child, you know, working their way through school. Um, there are co-op programs available in a lot of schools where they can work every couple of semesters and, and, you know, students can make a fair bit of money, 8,000, 10,000, $12,000 in the course of a four month period, period of time that can help to pay for school um, or working during the summers. And then of course there's savings, which, which takes a longer, it's a longer term process to save, enough, but if parents start early, they, they can definitely get there, especially with the help of the Canada Education Savings Grants, which can bump up the amount you contribute to a registered education savings plan. Right. Yeah. And I, I love the, these ideas. They're wonderful. And, and I think that to your point, it's like just about starting, right? And, and getting getting something ahead. But I think so many of us are just kind of like crippled by... Um, I don't want to say fear, but just the weight of all of this, you know, it seems so, mm-hmm. so daunting. How do you get past that, that first step of like, we just got to start somewhere? Well, I think, I think you, know, you realize you, you go through stages in life where certain things will take priority uh, in, earlier on in life. And maybe, you know, maybe you're not thinking about your child's education, you know, their college or university because they're too young right now. But what you can do as a starting point even if you can open up a registered education savings plan, you can even get with the help of a grandparent even, um, and just put in, hey, if it's $25 a month, if it's $50 a month, whatever you can afford, put that aside. And as you are able to put more in over the years, uh, try to do that every once in a while. Uh, Maybe increase the amount as your income goes up or other expenses fall by the wayside. So that's just, but that's just one way to pay for an education. So, but I, I would say start there. And then as you get within sort of 10 years or, set, or, or, or five years of your child going to school, evaluate, think, how are we going to pay for this? And look at those other ways that I've talked about, that, you know, and, and come up with a game plan. Say half the education will be paid for by, you know, our child working through school. Half will be paid for by or part will be paid for by loans. Part will be paid for by some savings. Come up with a plan knowing how much it's going to cost. And because uh, school's not cheap and it is going up. But, um, uh, you know, you want to have some sense about how much you're going to need each year. And in today's dollars, it's probably, depending on whether the child's living away at school or living at home, the cost could be sort of 10000 to 20000 a year would not be uncommon. Um, so, yeah, start early and develop a game plan over the course of time. But, but save what you can today. That's Tim Sesnick. He's the CEO and founder of Our Family Office, their financial planning firm. And uh, it's good advice. It beats what I have been doing up until this point, Jill, which is just buying lotto tickets. Right. And closing your eyes and hoping for the best. Yeah. Right? Just pre- if, I, if I pretend it doesn't <laughs> exist, I can't hear it doesn't exist. Right. He made it seem so simple. Not, but he made it seem doable. Something. Just put something away. Yes. All right, Scott. Thank you. You got it. That is show contributor Scott Chance. Well, speaking of school, back to school is just days away. What happens if there aren't enough teachers to staff the classrooms? We'll check in with the BCTF coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, as we know, the first day of school just days away. And there are some concerns, though. A teacher's shortage could even potentially delay some school openings. This, according to the BC Teachers Federation. And joining us to talk more about what this looks like is Clint Johnston, the president of the BCTF. Clint, thank you so much for being here this morning. Good morning, Jill. My pleasure. I know uh, it's difficult to get a hard number on the number of teachers and the number we are short in the province of BC, but do you have any idea what the shortage looks like at this point? Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question for the minister, honestly. I mean, hopefully they have some numbers on it. But for us, we know it. Uh, we know the way it looks for us is that it's everywhere in the province. It's not a matter of uh, it only being some places. It's everywhere in the province. It's only a matter of how much it's affecting a certain uh, district in the province because our members are telling us every day the impact it's having them and on the students they teach. So you say it's everywhere. So every school district in BC is short teachers? Well, I, I can't say that unequivocally because, as you just said, we don't have hard numbers. But um, from what we have in Anagoli from our members, I would suggest that's correct. Um, and I think you also only have to look at things like the fact that you have Fraser Valley districts last year, Langley and Chilark are the two that I remember, um, advertising for uncertified teachers to fill positions. So uh, if they're doing that in the Fraser Valley, I would suggest it's a problem all across the province, yeah. What does that mean then with the start of school just days away? If there's a teacher shortage, there aren't teachers in some of those classrooms, what happens in that scenario? Uh, well, I don't know if we'll get there. I mean, if you absolutely don't have a teacher in a classroom, um, hopefully they can shift around the staffing and replace that individual with someone else who's maybe got a non-enrolling position. But um, that's part of the problem right there as well, because what that ends up doing is taking service away from students who really who really need some support. So I think they'll all be opening, but um, it's a matter of whether they'll have an actual teacher or whether it'll just be someone filling in until they can try and uh, stop gap up on a longer term measure. When you say somebody in a non-enrolling position, then is that a teacher's assistant or, or a specialist or somebody that should be working in that school, but just a, in a different capacity? Yeah, so non-enrolling specialists are uh, the teachers who do specific jobs but don't have an entire class in front of them. So you're looking at librarians, you're looking at sometimes uh, music specialists, but also you're looking at a lot of the individuals like learning support teachers um, teachers who are giving children supports that they really need to be successful in their education in smaller settings. Um, and unfortunately, those are often the first people pulled to cover when they can't find adequate staffing in classrooms. And when we look at the numbers and the, knowing that there's a shortage, and, and perhaps this is a better question for the ministry as well, though, but does it seem strange or why are we only talking about this and looking at this days before the school year starts? This seems like something that should have been addressed at the end of last year or addressed a lot sooner. Well, it's a great question for the ministry. And to be fair, people are looking at it and trying to address it. But um, what I would say is it's been actually years and years. Uh, you know, we've been trying to sound the alarm that there's a shortage of teachers for a long, long time. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where there aren't any quick or simple solutions. It's not a matter of pulling teachers from the next province over. Um, you'll see that Quebec released numbers of their own. Their ministry is collecting that data, and they're 8,500 teachers short, they think. So this isn't just a BC problem. There's no easy, quick solutions anymore. Um, which is why you're still hearing about it, because even with people trying to fix it, um, it's going to take some longer-term solutions. Uh, when you mentioned pulling teachers uh, from other provinces, uh, if somebody, though, was teaching in, say, Alberta or Ontario or a different province, are they able to come to BC and start teaching? Do those skills transfer over, or do they have to uh, do something to be then qualified or then uh, be able to be a teacher in BC? Well, it's it's never easy to say for sure the, the each case is individual. But generally speaking, if they're teaching in another province in Canada already, it's usually not too hard for them to come and teach in B.C. It's when you go outside the province, if you're going to other countries or other jurisdictions like that. Within Canada, it's usually not bad for them to come. Um, we do usually get a lot of teachers who go and get their training and education in uh, Ontario specifically, but other provinces too, and then come teach in BC. Right. And when you but say, as I said, oh. they're, they're needed in their own province or territory right now, right? There's no, there's not that migration anymore because we're one of the most expensive jurisdictions to live into. Right. When you say it's usually not bad though, do they have to do something? It's not like you can just come here from another province and start teaching. Do you have to do anything? 
Well, that's why I want to say a lot of them could just come here and start teaching, yes. If it's a Canadian university they've graduated from and they've gotten their degree, often the case is, yes, they could just apply, get certified, and come teach here. Um, But I don't want to say that unequivocally because there could be cases where that's not true. All right. Uh, when you talk to uh, as well that this isn't something that's brand new. This is something that's been happening. Uh, I got an email from a teacher as well saying that this has been a problem for up to 10 years and that it's also administrative staff. It's support workers uh, where there are shortages. So would, would you agree with that? That, uh, again, it's not something brand new, that, that perhaps it goes back even as far as a decade? Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, and it's like a lot of things that, you know, it started in the more rural and remote areas, obviously, um, which doesn't get quite as much attention. But it's I would say it's at least a decade for sure. And that other comment is accurate, too. It's not just teachers. It's all of the staff. It's the support staff. It's principals, vice principals. Uh, you know, there's just a shortage of staff in general. Teachers are obviously the one I talk about. But absolutely, it's been years in the making. Um, and that's why it's going to take some longer term solutions that address some of the real issues, not just quick fixes. They're not available anymore. Um, The BC government, the education ministry, put out a release just yesterday uh, talking about the great news in Surrey, uh, saying that uh, Ecole KB Woodward is now complete, that this is going to offer more learning experience for for students. It then went on to talk about how more spaces and more construction is happening in Surrey, which, as we know, has been an issue as far as portables and uh, enrollment up and uh, a lack of space. Uh, if, If they're putting out this release, though, talking about great things that are happening with new schools in Surrey, doesn't that seem a little bit odd if we're also dealing with a shortage and it's unclear if we're even going to have teachers in all of those classrooms? I think that's a great question for the minister again. I know I've said that a few times, but I hope parents are asking that as well because it is good. There has been an ongoing issue with spaces and portables. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're building those spaces for expanding populations, but you're not um, working really hard to address the shortage that exists now, um, and will only get worse as more and more uh, students are enrolled in more and more schools, then, then, yeah, that seems a bit of a good question for the ministry to give an answer to. What do you think a solution would be? Uh, I mean, it wasn't that long ago we talked about uh, the New Deal, a contract reached between the government and teachers, and uh, that following, obviously, a, a bit of a tumultuous time leading up to that. Uh, what would be the solution, then, to deal with this? Well, like I said, there's no easy solution. I mean, some of the some of the work being done now is to try to have some incentives to draw teachers to particular areas of the province, but also just to draw people to uh, to teaching in general. Um, and those aren't bad, but if you incentivize people to come in, but you haven't addressed some of the working conditions, um, concerns that are making people, you know, frankly, burn out early and uh, leave the teaching career. If you don't address the kind of longer term stuff, uh, then you're not going to get anywhere. So there are some solutions in terms of creating more spaces in universities, making sure that those are more accessible all around the province. So not everybody has to come down to Vancouver to get their five years. Um, There are some things like that you can incentivize with a bit of money. The pay has gone up and that's great, but we're still working on, frankly, years and years and years of, of ones and zeros in terms of buying power in Vancouver. Um, so there's a lot of solutions. Uh, that's why it's not going to be a quick fix, and it's going to take looking at some of those things in depth. All right. Clint to Johnston, thank you so much for your time, and thanks for joining us this morning to talk more about this. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate your time. Clint Johnston is the president of the BC Teachers Federation, again, talking about uh, an ongoing teacher shortage and what that could potentially look like as kids go back to school. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know there has been a lot of research into self-driving vehicles, often thought of as a solution when it comes to safer, more efficient travel, safer roads. And some new research out of UBC is suggesting British Columbians, though, are not quite ready to embrace self-driving cars wholeheartedly. In fact, they'll need more of a gradual transition before adopting those cars on the roads. This was a study conducted by the Research on Active Transportation Lab, REACT, in the Faculty of Applied Science at UBC. And joining us to talk more is Alex Bigazi, Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at UBC and also REACT Principal Investigator. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure thing. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's an interesting one because I think maybe people really want to embrace this technology, but are still a little hesitant about it. So what did you find? Sure. Yeah, we well, we find, as you said, uh, a a real mixed bag of perceptions across the the whole province. So 
Um, we our, our study uh, undertook uh, an, an experiment to look at um, how perceptions of interactions between vehicles and pedestrians varied when the vehicle was a self-driving versus a non-self-driving car. And we ran a survey. We had about 1,500 people uh, evaluate videos of pedestrian car interactions at a crosswalk. And everyone evaluated the same set of videos, but for a random half for each person, we used the deception experiment where we described them as self-driving. And then we looked at how evaluations of those videos differed systematically when people thought they were self-driving versus non-self-driving. And that way we could better understand uh, how the introduction of self-driving vehicles will affect, uh, in particular, pedestrian experience uh, on British Columbia's roads. Um, and we found, as, as we said, uh, quite a range of perceptions with some on the positive side and some on the negative side, but with a, uh, a, a slightly larger proportion of the B.C. population um, with a kind of negative bias in terms of their perceptions of comfort and safety when interacting with vehicles if it's a self-driven versus a human-driven car. And to, to be clear then, the, the bit of the twist in this was that even though people that were surveyed were told that there were the, they were looking at self-driving cars, all of the cars in this, they were human-driven cars, weren't they? That's exactly right, yeah. So what we were trying to do is isolate the uh, effect of the kind of vehicle autonomy in particular versus the kind of other attributes like how the car maneuvered in the, in the interaction. Okay. Uh, so when you found that people were a little hesitant or that, uh, that, that they're maybe, uh, pardon the pun, want to put the brakes on this a little bit, what were the <laughs> reasons given as to, to why people weren't wholeheartedly going, uh, going and embracing this? Yeah, the um, in addition to kind of a, some quantitative ratings, we had open text comments that we analyzed as well. And some of the key challenges are pedestrians' uh, ability to know that they've been detected by the vehicle and uh, understand the intentions of the vehicle, right? So um, in human, it's, uh, human drivers and pedestrians, the, in the interaction, for example, at a crosswalk, there's a lot of nonverbal communication that happens uh, in terms of eye contact, in terms of looking, that the pedestrian knows they've been seen and that the driver intends to you know, stop and yield for them, which gives the pedestrian confidence that they won't be hit and they can cross the road, right? So with a self-driving car, you, know, you don't get those cues, and that creates you know, a, quite a bit of discomfort and a sense of increased risk and, um, and insecurity for the pedestrian. So a lot of it related to ability to understand uh, the intentions of the vehicle. It seems like from the findings as well that people are more comfortable with the self-driving vehicle, but with the uh, the with a human being in the car, maybe not driving, but being there ready to take over if need be. Yeah, exactly. We looked at, in addition to this kind of uh, autonomy bias that we measured, we looked uh, we had a range of policy questions as well to look at support for various um, types of. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say regulatory changes to accommodate self-driving vehicles. And um, while we see a, 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 quite a nearly even divide in the BC population in terms of support for kind of uh, allowing self-driving vehicles on road, we see strong, uh, much more uniform support for restrictions on what self-driving vehicles are allowed to do. And one of the key, uh, a couple of the key policies that have enjoy wide support, one is requiring a, a, a safety driver, it's called, or just a person in the driver's seat to take control in an emergency. And another one is to make sure that self-driving vehicles are clearly labeled and identified as such so that people can you know, a, approach that interaction with a better understanding of what type of vehicle they're dealing with. And what about areas that are pedestrian priority or uh, zones that may be a 30K zone, it's near a school or near a park? Did you, I know you asked people about whether or not self-driving vehicles should be allowed to, to access those areas just the same as any other vehicle. Yeah, exactly. That was another one of the um, policies that enjoyed pretty wide support is that you know during the early phases, um, we shouldn't be testing, uh, allow, allowing pilot self-driving vehicles to operate near schools and in pedestrian-dominated, pedestrian-priority zones, uh, uh, such as you're talking about. And so the, the broad recommendation is that we do need to 
you know, begin the uh, phasing in of self-driving vehicles, but in, in a in very restricted sense with pilot testing uh, and a lot of limitations on how they can operate and where they can operate and in relatively small numbers. And then as the technology evolves and as people's familiarity and comfort with these vehicles evolve, uh, then we can start to ease some of the restrictions and expand access. Uh, another differential in uh, support for self-driving vehicle policy is there is a good bit more public support for uh, beginning introduction with shared autonomous vehicles rather than privately owned autonomous vehicles. So uh, there's a natural place for something like uh, a transit agency like uh, TransLink or BC Transit to, uh, to do some pilot testing of autonomous shuttles and uh, services like that. Hmm, interesting finding. So people are more comfortable with, say, a, a self-driving bus than they would be with a private self-driving car? Yeah, uh, yeah. Given similar t- development of the technology, yeah, that's correct. Um, they, but a shared self-driving vehicle can also be a kind of um, a, a fairly small shuttle, like something more uh, in the profile of a, um, a van or a large SUV for what we call microtransit. All right. And uh, and looking at those, just one other, um, you've mentioned this as well. So it seems like people also, they want those cars labeled. They don't want just self-driving vehicles blending in with everybody else, but markers on them so people know what they're dealing with. Exactly. Yeah. So um, people want to know ahead of time that they're dealing with a self-driving vehicle. And then there's also um, a kind of a strain of research going on um, in, in terms of the technology development, which is looking at different ways that the vehicle can communicate its intentions. And so uh, there have been some, uh, some vehicle, develop, uh, vehicle developers and also researchers looking at kind of lights that they can use or other kind of signaling from the vehicle that can play that role of communicating to the pedestrian or the bicyclist, you know, you have been detected and I intend to yield to you uh, to, again, increase that comfort and try to develop some of that uh, human machine communication that is necessary if, uh, you know, human travelers are going to be sharing the road with uh, non-human vehicle operators. Interesting research. Alex Bagazi, thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett in for Simi Sarah. Well, if you spend any time on the roads, whether driving, cycling, walking, you have probably seen a driver flick a cigarette butt out the window. It can be infuriating, especially if it happens during that dry weather we've been having. And also because of the litter, you've probably seen cigarette butts on the ground as well. It is also a ticketable offense. And recently, it happened in front of Victoria Police Chief Constable Del Manic. And Chief Constable Delmanic is here now to tell us a bit more about how this happened. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Well, I know you shared this on social media, but take us back to where you were and what you saw and how you responded when you saw this driver discard this cigarette butt. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. Uh, so it happened on Friday, just over lunch, the lunch hour, a couple blocks north of the uh, Victoria Police Station. Uh, in fact, it was on Quadra Street, for those of uh, your listeners that may know where Crystal Pool is. It's a residential area. Uh, the driver was parked, uh, I was parked, and um, you know he was taking puffs of his uh, cigarette, and, and in between that, he had it dangling out the uh, driver's window. Uh, as I was getting out of my vehicle, uh, you know, he carelessly flicked it out, uh, did not extinguish the, the cigarette, uh, so the burning cigarette went and landed on in the grass median. Um, you know, I looked at that. Uh, obviously, to me, that's a very serious thing, especially with everything that's been going on uh, in the province with all the wildfires. And so I stepped out of my vehicle and I actually ex- extinguished the cigarette for him, uh, went up and uh, identified myself as a police officer. And, and then I engaged the driver and, and we had a bit of a discussion, but he really wasn't buying it. Uh, he really didn't think it was serious. And, you know, I heard all the excuses that uh, sometimes you would expect to hear in a case like this. What were the excuses? Well, I mean, he started off and uh, his first excuse was, uh, look, uh, I was going to put it out um, just on the phone. As soon as I got off the phone, now he was parked, so he legally could be on the phone. But he goes, as soon as I am uh, finished my call, I was going to step out and put it out. Um, then he went and transitioned to, why well, don't I have an ashtray in my car? 
um, he actually mentioned that he was meeting up with a family member later today. Uh, and it was a real coincidence that I was writing him a ticket because his friend or family member was actually had bought him an ashtray and was going to be giving it to him later this afternoon. I'm not sure if I buy that. Uh, and then he said, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. What's what is the big deal? Uh, and then he you know, finished with saying, I see others flick their cigarette uh, out the window all the time and I don't see them getting a ticket. So why are you why are you picking on me? And and at one point, uh, you know, he uh, he asked for he looked at me and he goes, uh, you know, this is ridiculous. I want to talk to a supervisor. Uh, and that was a bit awkward uh, because the officer that was with me, uh, one of the constables uh, that was there, uh, you know, we kind of stared at each other and, and the officer turns to the driver and says, uh, sir, he's the chief. Uh, and then and then we had this kind of awkward, awkward pause there. And uh, and then we continued on with uh, the interaction where, where I did write him a ticket. And of course, you know, it's a five hundred and seventy five dollar ticket. And, you know, it's worth every penny, uh, especially in the tinder dry conditions that we're seeing across the province. Wow. I I mean, even the excuses, uh, everything from I don't have an ashtray in my car to uh, my friend or family members bringing me an ashtray. I mean, wow, those those are some some good excuses or or that he was just storing it in the dry grasses and was going to be putting it out uh, as soon as he got off the phone. Uh, That's um, it seems to take the cake, but I'm guessing you probably hear excuses quite often. Yeah, yeah, we do. And, you know, I'm as a chief now, I, and I've been doing this a long time, and I've written thousands of tickets, and I, I do apply a level of discretion, uh, as most police officers do. Um, but, but in this particular case, when it's happening, when we've got major parts of British Columbia uh, on fire, and we've got these tinder dry conditions, and all it really takes is just some irresponsible behavior, uh, it's, it's reckless. Uh, and when uh, I just couldn't believe he was that out of touch. I thought perhaps once I started chatting with him, he would have recognized the seriousness of the matter. Um, but he kind of fought it right to the very end. And, you know, but after we had a discussion, uh, we ended up actually shaking hands and, and he understood it. He didn't agree with the ticket, uh, but it was ended up being a positive interaction at the very end, at least. When you were parked and you saw this happening and then got out of your vehicle and, and approached this person, were you in a, a marked police car? Or were you wearing a uniform? No, I was uh, I was in an unmarked police vehicle and I was in plain clothes. Uh, so, but I had my badge with me. And uh, again, I normally wouldn't uh, step in to a traffic offense uh, if it wasn't a serious one. I mean, every one of your listeners usually sees somebody behaving badly, driving badly, you know, cutting people off or, or doing something. So, you know, I, I wouldn't get anywhere if I was stopping people always and writing tickets. But when it's so egregious. Uh, and it's just so purposeful, and a message needs to be sent, then, uh, then the odd time I'll, uh, I'll step in, and that's what I felt was appropriate in this instance. Right. I, I was just thinking, if you were in a marked vehicle in, in uniform, it would appear even more brazen if he tossed the cigarette butt out right in front of a police car, and it would be hard to think that he would be surprised in that scenario. But uh, but And again, not condoning it, but makes a little bit more sense, I guess, why maybe he thought that, it, that uh, there was nobody around, that he wouldn't get a ticket. Uh, do you think the the $575 fine, do you think that's an appropriate fine for uh, throwing a cigarette butt out the window? Well, I mean, there's lots of commentary on that, right? I mean, uh, certainly it's egregious behavior. It really is irresponsible. Again, not that it makes it any better, but you touched on it at the start of your show. It's also littering. Who's Mm -hmm. picking up the cigarette butts that people are walking around and and it's just it's littering as well I actually didn't write him a littering ticket which i could have uh i think the fine probably in some of the situations that we're seeing in british columbia could be much higher uh, but i certainly think 575 dollars in my view it gets people's attention uh and it's it's something that i think while well, i said to him uh you know i'm assuming because i said to him you've got a nice car uh, he's, the driver's 25 years old. And I go, I'm assuming this is what you do every time you discard your cigarette because you don't have an ashtray. I don't see a lot of cigarette butts in your nice new car. Uh, you probably are doing this every single day. I just happened to catch you. So this is a behavior that you've got to stop immediately. And what was his response to that? Well, he agreed. He, he agreed. And like I said, he went back to, well, I'm meeting a family member later today who's bringing me an ashtray. I, I just find that a little too coincidental that I end up writing him a ticket the same day that he's going to be meeting a family member to get an ashtray when I'm sure, you know, they're, they're easy to get. You can get them anywhere. 
Um, and he should have probably thought about that a heck of a lot sooner. Uh, you mentioned you could have also given him a littering ticket. What would the fine for that be if you if you did uh, the, the Wildfire uh, yeah, Act and uh, littering? I don't have my cheater in okay. open in front of me. Uh, I, uh, I, I would have done it. I don't know what it is, uh, I, but I've got a, a sheet that I can look at to what it is. Uh, but I honestly felt, uh, again, I just wanted him to get the message. It, the, the message really here uh, is that this is reckless behavior. This is... Uh, this is a serious thing that you're doing and you're impacting the safety for so, so many people. And, you know, you just have to turn your TV on or your radio and just watch what's been happening. Uh, and much of this irresponsible behavior is what's leading to firefighters and other frontline safety personnel and first responders putting their lives at risk. And do you hope as well, I mean, it is the, you put out a picture of the ticket and, and shared this story on social media. Are you hoping that this will also serve as a bit of a wake-up call? Maybe the next time somebody thinks about throwing that cigarette butt out the window, you never know. The, the police chief might be parked next to you or nearby and you might get this ticket, so don't do it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, I, on social media, you know, I looked at it on Twitter and I've got, it's kind of gone a bit viral. I've got about 68,000 views on it since last week and lots and lots of commentary. I just kind of scrolled through uh, the thread and uh, 99% of the comments are positive and people want me to add an extra zero to the 575 and, and, and we're really supporting the ticket being written and actually even wondering why it was so low. Hmm. Well, I'm so glad you were able to join us to talk more about this uh, because I, I thought it was very interesting when you shared that and uh, how the story unfolded. Chief Constable Manick, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Jill.